Matthew chapter 6, please. I am calling this one Fast Pray Love. Fast Pray Love. If it sounds like Eat Pray Love, it's because it's supposed to. As um, someone who asked me earlier this week, what's the title? I said Fast Pray Love. Like, oh, like Eat Pray Love? I'm like, exactly like that, except not like that, all at the same time. So we're, let's, uh, we'll look into it. Um, but Lord, long ago, you had spoken to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, you have spoken to us through your son. The very son whom you've appointed the heir of all things and through whom you also created the world. Christ is the radiance of your glory. He is the exact imprint of your nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so we ask that you speak now through your son. That you uphold us by the word of his power. So that we may radiate his glory. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray, amen. Of all the horrible religions in the world, the most horrible of all is the worship of the God within. That's G.K. Chesterton. What is he? Hear, hear, Hear him explain this a little more. Jones is his example man. That Jones shall worship the God within him turns out ultimately to mean that Jones shall worship Jones. Let Jones worship the sun or the moon or anything rather than the inner light. Let Jones worship cats or crocodiles if he can find any on his street, but not the God within. G.K. Chesterton. The worst religion in the world is the worship of the God within. Okay. Eat, Pray, Love was a sensation in 2006 when Elizabeth Gilbert wrote her memoir. She apparently had problems with her husband who had absolutely no faults. Again, he had not done anything wrong to her. He just simply wasn't her style anymore. She apparently prays in the bathroom and hears God tell her, get a divorce and move on. And then she goes on this journey. It was then adapted into a film in 2010 because her book spent 187 weeks on the New York Times bestselling list. This is an American phenomenon, Eat, Pray, Love. You may remember, it's even come out in signs that people put in their homes, Eat, Pray, Love became an American phenomenon. Well, I want to read to you what Ross Douthat said about Gilbert's theology. She's very spiritual and very open about that. I don't know if you know that about Elizabeth Gilbert. She's not a secularist. She's a worship the God (laughs) within-ist. Here's how Ross Douthat explains the theology that she promotes in her book and in the movie. It's worth quoting because he says it so well. So listen to this. The movie is a contemporary pilgrim's progress in which a scattered, baffled, modern woman finds happiness by figuring out what God wants from her and acting accordingly. So, what does the Almighty ask of our heroine? 
Well, for starters, he wants Gilbert to break up with her husband of eight years, whose chief sin seems to be a slightly haphazard career trajectory and a disinterest in accompanying his wife on some of her travel journalist junkets. Then God apparently wants her to shack up temporarily with a gorgeous young man played by James Franco before dropping him when her, when their messy relationship gets in the way of her self-actualization. Then God wants her to embark on a year-long globe-trotting adventure, first in Italy where she learns to eat pasta and enjoy herself, then in India where she learns to meditate and forgive herself, and then finally Indonesia where she learns that it's okay to fall for a handsome Brazilian divorcee. If everything God wants sounds suspiciously like what a willful, capricious, self-indulgent Western woman with too much time and money on her hands might want, Well, then you've unlocked the theological message of this movie. Late in her ashram phase, Gilbert distills it to a bumper sticker length. God dwells within me as me. And what that God wants for her, inevitably, is the fulfillment of that inner self, the renunciation of its hang-ups and self-doubts and the gratification of its desires. One more paragraph, because this one was interesting. Not that the others weren't. This theology helps explain why, out of our four locales featured in Eat, Pray, Love, Gilbert really reaches out for spiritual insight only in New York, India, and Bali. During her sojourn in Rome, where a rather well-known world religion makes its headquarters, she just eats and eats and eats. After all, why even dabble in a spiritual tradition that you know would disapprove of your life choices or frown on your God is me epiphanies? Better to keep tucking away the pasta and then hustle on eastward looking for gurus less judgmental than the popes. Isn't that fascinating? That's eat, pray, love. American sensation. It's America's theology with the priestess Elizabeth Gilbert leading us and many others following in the wake. She's just part of the spirit of the age, which we've talked about in the past. Well, if that's Elizabeth Gilbert's theology, eat, pray, love, we see here in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, Jesus's theology, which is fast, pray, love. Slight difference here. See, for Jesus, he is calling us to fasting, not self-indulgence. He is calling us to praying to the Father in heaven, not to the God within. And he's calling us to loving the needy rather than loving one's self. And hooking up with a romantic interest to love yourself. So what we're going to see Jesus present with fast, pray, love it are three tools with which we can cultivate the Christ-like virtues in our life and grow into that whole person righteousness he's been teaching about in the Sermon on the Mount. This whole person righteousness and virtue that lives in accord with the divine nature. So these are tools. He's going to give us tools to cultivate this in our lives. Okay? So reminder real quick, as you see, we're in the middle of a series, Partakers of the Divine Nature, started with Epiphany, because the idea is that as Christ was manifest to the world on Epiphany, we want in this season to have him manifest through our lives as we partake in the divine nature. 
the phraseology of divine nature and our participation in it comes from Second Peter chapter 1, and it's in verse 4. He tells us that Christ has given us his promises so that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature. The Bible is unashamed in saying that mere humans can mutually indwell with God, him in us and we in him, Because Christ came and took on human flesh, he assumed our humanity to heal our humanity so that the humanity and divinity can be joined together in him. And so we are being joined together with God in Christ. We get to partake in his divine nature. Um, in, um, In the Sermon on the Mount, we opened up with the Beatitudes. These were eight virtues of Christ-likeness. The ladder of Beatitudes, the top being the most Christ-like the joyful acceptance of persecution. Then in chapter 5, verse 17 to the end of chapter 5, he gave us six illustrations for what this virtue looks like in life. And when we live out his Christ-like virtues in life, we find that he grows in us this whole person righteousness. That unlike the Pharisees, whose righteousness only goes skin deep, it's only morality and actions He is putting in us this whole person, outside and inside, beyond skin deep. It's heart deep righteousness. That's what Christ is putting in us. So righteousness isn't something we do. It's something we become as we live in accord, body, soul, mind, and spirit with the divine nature. And now we come to chapter 6, and he's going to give us three tools for cultivating this in our lives. So eight virtues Six illustrations, now three tools. So here they are. Fasting, praying, and loving through almsgiving. Just how to use the word love because it works, and it goes with eat, pray, love, and it reverses the American religion. <laughs> All right. So these three tools. So we're gonna, um, what we're going to read is he's going to tell us to give alms to the poor. He's going to tell us to pray. He's going to tell us to fast. These have often been dismissed as legalistic. Well, I've got to do these in order to be righteous. He's not going to say that. These have also been dismissed as, well, as these disciplines that we just need to do to gain God's favor. That's also dismissed. Again, these are tools. They're tools that help us cooperate with the grace of God working in our lives. How do we receive God's grace and allow it to work with us? These are the tools for cultivating. Jonathan Edwards helpfully calls the spiritual disciplines, which is what Jesus is talking about, these tools. He helpfully calls them means of grace. But what he means by means of grace is fasting, praying, reading your Bible, giving, and all of these things we do are not to earn God's favor and grace. They're the means, they're the pathways, they're the channels of getting into his grace. His grace is here. He's pouring his grace out. How do we open our lives to receive it? How do we cooperate with the power of his grace in our lives? Answer is the spiritual disciplines, or the tools that God's given us to cultivate the grace in our lives. And when you cooperate with God's grace, as we've been saying for weeks, when we cooperate with his grace, his Christ-like virtues grow in us, he gives us whole person righteousness, and we are brought into partaking of the divine nature. 
That's when our light shines and others can glorify our Father in heaven. So, here we go. Chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. There it is. That's his opening introduction to what he's about to say now as he introduces the three tools to us. He First, what we're going to see, there's going to be three patterns. First, he's going to tell us when you give, pray, fast, indicating when you, indicating he expects, he assumes that we're going to grab these tools and use them in our lives. It's not, well, if you feel like being holier than thou, when you give, when you fast, when you pray. Then he's going to caution us, as he does here in verse 1. He's going to caution us about our motivation in using these tools. So when I put money in the offering box, or I bring a hot meal to someone who's hungry, or I visit an orphanage and play with the children, is my motivation so that people will see me as such a great, righteous person? Or is my motivation to do this because the love of God in me can't help but meet the need of people around me? That's what he's warning us about. He's warning us that, look, when you develop virtue and righteousness, this inner godliness, I'm sorry, this outer godliness that we're doing can arouse inner devilishness. Oh, I don't see anyone else fasting three days in a row. I am pretty good. This is what Jesus is warning us about. Beware that as you practice your father's virtue and righteousness in this world, that you don't become like the hypocrites. Hypocrites, Jesus will call, are not just people who say they're religious but live an immoral life. That's one version of hypocrisy. But hypocrites in Matthew are the people who live righteously on the outside, but on the inside, they're devilish and demonic because they're saying, yes, people love me because of the good I do. That's hypocrisy. It's an incongruence between my outer righteousness and my inner righteousness. That's what Christ is calling. Virtue is. Virtue is whole person righteousness. So that when I help and when I do something good, it would not matter if somebody saw me or not. An audience changes nothing about what I'm about to do. So he warns us. It, that's the very, he warns us in each example, but he begins introductory verse by warning us because it's that huge. There is a massive temptation here for you to actually sin when you think you're doing good. Okay, so when you, he expects us to do these things, to grab these tools, Beware of that inner devilishness that would want to arise. And third, he is unembarrassed to tell us that God will reward us. There's nothing wrong with doing something, wanting God to reward you. You don't do it to get his favor. God loves you. But what Jesus is going to tell us is that we should be doing things to get God's reward, not human's reward. That's what he's telling us to do. So when Frank pats me on the back because I helped his wife in order to get a pat on the back, that's my reward. 
Jesus is going to tell us to yearn for bigger rewards. Yearn from, yearn for God's pat on your back. That's what you should seek. We should crave to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 tells us so much that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He rewards. And there's nothing wrong, Jesus tells us, for seeking that reward. But it's all about the motivation. All right, tool number one. Here we go. Love. This is not a self-love. This is a selfless love. And it comes in the form of charity or almsgiving or helping. So, verse two. Thus, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your father, so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus is not saying that when you go and help the needy and somebody catches you, you're toast. He's not saying that. Why did Noreen have to notice what I was doing? She ruined it. It's not what he's saying. So you don't need to buy a ski mask. Of course, with COVID, it's a little easier to just wear a mask and be more discreet. But you don't have to go buy a ski mask and look like you're robbing a bank to be discreet about helping other people. It's not what he's saying. It's okay to be noticed. It's okay to be seen. The point is that you're not motivated to do these things so that Ron will pat me on the back, right? That's what he's saying. So it doesn't matter if everyone knows. It matters is, though, if nobody knew, would you have done it just the same? That's what matters. Um, there's a, this, this phrase, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. To me, that's speaking of second nature. Let your giving to others be second nature. See, if my left hand knows what my right hand is doing, it's like I'm conscientiously trying to tell myself I got to give. So like, there's this whole like, consci- ah, I got to do it. Just, but when you just do something, like when I just habitually, I'm a, I'm a lip picker sometimes. I habitually just do that when I'm in thought. Uh, I often, my right hand doesn't know what my left hand's doing. It's not aware of it. It's just a habit. What Jesus is saying here is let your giving to the needy become second nature. Not calculated, ooh, low attendance today, I'm not going to do much good. Oh, lots of audiences, I'm going to do it. Don't do that. Make this habitual in your life. It's second nature that when you see need, you reach for it. Do you remember in the Beatitudes when we talked about blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy? We defined mercy as bowing low to meet need. Make that second nature. When you see it, you're just meeting it. There's this, um, there's this woman from St. Petersburg in the 18th century wonderful Christian woman named Xenia. And she was married to a wealthy husband, but then after a few years, uh, he died. And so she just inherits this whole house and wealth. And so she begins to sell everything to give it to the poor. But her wealthy friends intercede and say, 
Xenia, you've lost your mind. And they even had a doctor analyze her. The doctor said, she's not insane. She's completely sane. And so she proceeded to give everything to the poor and moved to the cold streets of St. Petersburg. This is 18th century Russia. And there, the locals mock her as insane. You're a crazy woman. The alms that she receives from those who pass by, she gives most to the fellow poor with her. And at night... When the construction sites were abandoned, she would actually go to them and carry the bricks up to the roofs and lay them there for the workers when they came in the morning to find them prepared. What a wonderful example of a servant who did something not to be praised or seen. And then eventually, as she had done this, what happens is, because we're motivated for the right reasons, and you're using this tool of serving, God's virtue and whole person righteousness grows in us, and it becomes second nature. And people then began to recognize Zina, not as someone to mock as insane, but as someone to bring their children to to seek blessing. And so she died and is honored by Uh, many Christians, uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church actually calls her a saint. That's a great example of almsgiving, even someone who's poor and has no money. And so this is what we're looking to do. One other Russian, uh, this is John Kronstadt, he was a pastor in the 19th century, gave us an incredible challenge. He said this, to give enough charity, we must limit our expenses. For example, we should not buy excessive or expensive things we could easily do without. For this is stealing from the property of the poor, as our surplus belongs to them. Ouch. Eat, pray, love. I'm going to use my surplus to globetrot the world and find myself. Christ is saying, you're going to find yourself in me as you give yourself away. Almsgiving, true love, is where we're using what we don't absolutely need to bless others. Wow. A quick word here, too, is, all right, money. 10% is what the church has always asked from people, a meager 10%. And some people have the attitude of, well, I'm just going to use my 10% my way. Careful. Be careful that you aren't falling into the temptation of using my money my way, even if it's for other people. I think there was great wisdom in the early church, and we see this model in the early church, that they collected the tithes from the people to distribute to those in need, because what it does is it brings a humility to us to trust as we give that God's going to see this going to the right place. Rather than me just saying, well, I like this charity, I don't like that one, and you're, all you're doing is you're throwing your money the way you want to. Is that really a discipline with your money? Is that really giving it sacrificially to God? Now, We don't talk about tithes here often, and I think a lot of people treat us as just a Sunday night Bible study, so we often don't get a lot. But we are, um, we do collect tithes, and I'm, I'm a bivocational pastor. I, I, uh, I receive some of the tithes as Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa has chosen for me what I receive, and the rest, we have very little expenses. As you know, we're not a very flashy church with lots of expensive things. 
we've, we spend very little and try to use that towards things. We have a food closet. We try to get, we support the Mountain Pregnancy Center. We support the Plural Life Ministries. We have a ton of missionaries. And unfortunately, COVID has been so bad that we're having to look at some of these and withdraw a little bit. My encouragement to us is not, please enrich me and my family. That's not my prayer at all. God will always take care of Pastor Brandon and Brittany and Avalyn and Atticus. My prayer is that Christians would once again realize that God has asked us to use the resources given to us for him. Oh, but it's so secret when I give to church. I don't even know what happens to it. Or nobody, the charity doesn't give me like this, thank you so much, you're now a member sort of a thing. And Jesus did say, your reward comes from your father. Anyways, I thought that that might needed to be said. Um, it is something to consider that we, <laughs> money is where it hurts. There's two places that hurt our life the most, money and food. And ironically, Jesus addresses both of these. I'm serious. You think, oh, I don't care that much about money and food's whatever. I take food away from you for a day and I take money away from you for a month. You will get very cranky, very cranky. Don't tell me you don't care about these things because I will show you you do. I will challenge you. I will just say, let me put it all in a little box that you can't touch. And you will find out that we are driven by money and food. And Jesus is asking, hey, it's only 10. I didn't ask for all of it. I just asked for at least 10%. And here's my admonition. Start small. Start with the 10 that God's asking for. And then if you can work your way into carving your budget for more to give outside, say 10% you give to your local church, and then I'm going to start adding five and another 10 for this person or that person or whatever. That's what God is asking for us to do. We start by sacrificing a tithe to him. And as we learn to unlove money, we will then, if he's working in us, begin to grow more and more. I don't need as much as I live with, and now maybe this can be for other people. And brothers and sisters, I'm not saying this because I'm some enlightened saint who lives as perfectly. I'm saying this because this is what God's saying to us, and I'm saying we need to really rethink our love with money and our love with stuff. Do I need the newest iPhone? That's, you know how expensive those are, the newest one? Oh, but it's only $30 a month if I do the payment plan. Uh huh. Or you can buy one of the older models for two hundred dollars in cash, done, no monthly payments, and that thirty can go to someone who actually needs money, or needs food, or to the Mountain Pregnancy Center. Just things to consider what we love. Okay, I need I need a step forward here. Number two, fast. Uh, yep, fasting. I'm going to skip over prayer because we're going to go with the eat, pray, love. Wait. What am I? No, no, I'm going, sorry, that wasn't it. We're going to fasting next because I want to do prayer last. That's why. So go to verse 16, fasting. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. I'm fasting, I'm shaking. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head. That's like basically take a shower. Like do make yourself look good. That's what they did in the past. They anointed themselves with oil. And wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This does not mean that if you're fasting and someone offers you a piece of cake, you have to secretly throw it in the trash can and be weird about it. You're allowed to say, no, thank you, I'm fasting. 
Remember, the idea here is the motive. Your motivation to fast wasn't so that people would be marveled by you. You just happened to have to bring it up and like, sorry, I know it's awkward, but I'm, I'd rather not, I'm fasting. That's fine. That's fine. You're not, in other words, you're not coming in on Sunday and going, guess what, everyone? I fasted the whole week. That's, I don't know why you're saying that. All right. Um, this, by the way, fasting is perhaps the most neglected of the tools in our culture. And I'm saying this experientially. I have not traditionally been a faster. I, in my youth, tried it because my youth pastor said we should. And all I discovered, and my friend influenced me in this, he said, all I am is crabby when I fast. That's not very Christ-like. And I said, that's right. I'm not fasting. So uh, what I've learned, though, is fasting has been growing in my life as I've seen value in it. And here's how it works, brothers and sisters. Don't try to be a mega faster right away. It's it stinks. There's no safer, stronger word, I guess. It's just really hard. Start small. Start with intermittent fasting. That's where maybe you skip a meal or two. Then work your way toward maybe a whole day, maybe even two days. I've only been trying this for the last year. By the way, there's so many different ways to fast. Um, For example, there's a lot of us think of a fast as a strict fast. You can't have any food. None. Actually, the way ancient Christians practiced fasting was they simply said, you can eat. We don't want you to faint. You just can't eat meat, eggs, or dairy or oil. Well, if you think about it, that eliminates a lot of food. Basically, you're left with veggies, fruit, and grain, not cooked with oil, of course. Um, and so that you're still getting to eat, but you're setting aside types of food, the, the rich foods, the foods that fill you the most. You're setting those aside. That's one version of fasting. Another version can be, uh, I'm going to give up what's very hard for me. I have this thing where I do coffee way too much. I'm going to fast coffee. That's so hard for some people. That is so hard. I've tried to fasting caffeine, and it's... Doable, but it's hard. Um, but what we need to understand is that we need to schedule a time to fast regularly. Because you're never going to feel like fasting. Schedule it regularly. The early church, we know from the first century, there's a document called the Didache, and it tells us. It was a, it was a manual for teaching new Christians the way of the Christian way. And it was, as early as the first century, this is during New Testament times, they said that Christians fast twice a week. They were fasting on Wednesdays and on Fridays because Wednesday Judas sold Jesus for the 30 shekels and on Friday Jesus died on the cross. Now again, that doesn't necessarily mean a strict fast with no food all day. It might mean that they gave up the meats and the dairies and the oils. But nonetheless, there was a weekly rhythm of setting the body to this mentality of fasting. Um, We traditionally, as a church, um, I mean, as the church, have always fasted on Advent and uh, Lent because these are seasons of repentance and of preparation for the big celebration to come. And so there are seasons of fasting. Lent is coming up. Maybe this is the time to start praying about how you are going to practice fasting in the coming days. Um, What do you fast? You don't have to fast food either. Sometimes we can fast stuff, the material world like cell phones, internet, 
television, the news. People are addicted to the news. I'm not kidding. It's on all the time. They have with what's happening in the world. There was a, I just heard a chime on a phone. It might mean China blew up a country. I got to look. Fast something that you're addicted to or attached to and see what happens. You might be asking, what's the point of fasting? Remember, these are tools to cultivate the virtues and whole person righteousness so that we can participate in the divine nature. What fasting will do is fasting will show you the passions of your flesh. I want to eat! And it gives you the chance to tell the soul that it's in charge of the body. Because we live in a world where the body is in charge of everything we do. I'm hungry. We snack all day. We snack all day. We don't need to. Because we live in the passions of our flesh. I want this. I want that. I, and we're continually indulging and stimulating ourselves. Fasting lets the soul breathe and have its proper place in our lives again. God leading us, leading our bodies through our soul. That's the Christian makeup. God, soul, body. He's leading us as we lead our bodies. But we live in a world where our bodies lead everything else and then tell God, this is what we want. So much more to say, but so little time. Um, Number three. Prayer. So giving to the needy, fasting, and now the third expected tool is prayer. Verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners, and they love that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, They have their reward. Again, that does not mean don't let people see you pray. We prayed together at 4 p.m. We prayed together. That's okay, and we're called to do that. Pray alone and assembled. But the motive, remember, that's what's going on here. What's the motive? Do you want to be seen praying so that people think well of you? But, verse 6, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So in other words, you're going to pray regardless if people know you're praying or not. Verse 7, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Here's how the the heathen prayed. They were trying to persuade and manipulate a reluctant God to move for them. So they had all these incantations and these magic quotations, and they had to do their, their prayers exactly right, or the God wouldn't hear them. Jesus is saying, don't do that stuff. You have a father who already knows what you need. So pray to him like a child to a father. He wants to hear you. He's not reluctant. You don't have to persuade him or manipulate him. He's already there saying, I see your need. I want to meet it. I'm waiting for you to call out to me. That's what Jesus is saying. So he's not saying don't repeat certain prayers that you love. I have prayers that I pray every day. 
That's not the way the pagans prayed. I'm praying that because Christ is with me. They're praying because their gods aren't with them. So they're like, remember Elijah on Mount Carmel? They're up on the altar dancing around, cutting themselves and doing all kinds of crazy things to get their God's attention. Not us. We pray because God hears. Because he already knows. St. John Chrysostom, he was that 4th century great preacher. Chrysostom means golden-mouthed. They nicknamed him John the Golden-mouthed because he was the preacher of the early church, the 4th century. Uh, He said this in his sermon on this part of prayer. If God knows what we have need of, why should we pray? Ever wonder that? If he already knows, why pray? Well, Chrysostom says, We don't pray to instruct him, but to prevail with him, to be made intimate with him by continuance in supplication, to be humbled, to be reminded of your sins. That's beautiful. Prayer, in other words, is our relationship with God. This is the center of our relating with God. So Jesus then takes the time to take us through a model prayer in verse 9. Pray then like this. By the way, the Didache, which I already mentioned, actually said that Christians pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day. Isn't that interesting? That early, they're already doing it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread And forgive us our debts in the ESV, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Or some people think that should read the evil one. So Frederick Dale Bruner summarized the Sermon on the Mount beautifully. By the way, Bruner's Bruner's written some magnificent commentaries, mostly on John's gospel. Fantastic commentary. Um, But he said this about this prayer. The Lord's Prayer stretches from the Father at the beginning to the devil at the end, from heaven to hell, and in between, heaven and hell, six brief petitions for everything important in life. Wow, that's the Lord's Prayer right there. Six short petitions for everything in life between Father, devil, heaven, and hell. Prayer is, to Jesus, the most formative act a Christian can participate in. Did you hear that? If you want to grow in Christ, what is the most formative thing you can do? It is pray. It is pray. Now, Jesus didn't actually say this is the most important thing you can ever do, but he modeled it. And he's also saying it without saying it in this sermon by making prayer way longer than giving to the needy and fasting put together. Did you notice that? This is the only one where he then gives us an example of how to do it with specifics. And furthermore, we, in this whole, the three tools for cultivating his virtues in our life, this is the center of the sermon. I don't know if you noticed that. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 21 is the center of the sermon. Chapter 5 is before it. Chapter 7 is after it. Well, this prayer the Lord's Prayer, is the center of the center of the center of the sermon. Okay, the Beatitudes are the introduction. 
This whole virtue, greater righteousness, is the center, and then there's this call to being wise at the end. So the center is the bulk of the sermon. Then the center of that center is these three tools, fasting, praying, and giving poor, giving to the poor. And then the center of that center is prayer itself. And then the center of that center of prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the very center of the prayer, do you see what we're doing here? We are getting to the very heart of Jesus' sermon here so that even at the center of the center of the center of the center, now the center of the prayer itself, God and man meet. What do I mean? The first three petitions, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, are petitions for the divine, for divinity. The last three, give us bread, forgive us of our sins, and protect us, are for humanity. So what's at the very center, the middle of three and three, is we have the divinity and the humanity coming together. That in prayer, in other words, we get the mutual indwelling, Christ in us, us in Christ, that we've been looking for as we are seeking to partake in the divine nature. God in man and man in God is what Christ was incarnated. This is what he's inviting us to. Him and us and us in him, this mutual indwelling. And prayer is the very center of our experience of the mutual indwelling. It is therefore no coincidence that all of the earliest writers in the church called prayer the deifying virtue. Because there is no other Christian practice that brings us closer to the heart of God himself than prayer. This is why we must ask Jesus to teach us how to pray. And this is why prayer is a lifelong practice that we never master and are always growing in. And this is why God put on my heart to have an hour-long prayer service before our communion every week. It is that important. No one ever says, I've got prayer down, I can do it. Ever. You're not ever going to be that godly. This is our way to continue to mutually indwell one another. Christ put huge emphasis on it. Its location, his teaching, and his practice. We even see him praying all night. It's called a vigil. All night. We have so much to learn from him. Well, I had prepared a bunch of comments on the prayer itself, but I... Definitely run the clock to the ground. We can talk about that maybe some other time, like on the Wednesday night prayer night. But um, let's close here. Let's close by keeping these tools close at hand. How do we keep these tools close at hand? Well, it begins with what Jesus said, when you fast, when you pray, when you give to the poor. He expects that we're going to do these. So, plan for it. Elizabeth Gilbertian theology doesn't need any planning. My stomach says, I say, oh, where's a snack? It's been two hours. That's long for most of us. It takes no planning. Just eat. Hoarding money takes, I just... Or spending money for yourself, actually. That takes no planning. I want that. 
throw it out. We must plan to do these things. You must budget to give. You must budget in your time to pray. You must budget, if you will, a time to fast. So are you going to fast on Fridays? Start with one day a week and start simple. Guys, please do not overdo it. Do not overdo any of this. I'm going to give so much. No, start little. You will become proud if you overdo it, or you will lose heart and give up altogether. And I fear that that's what's happened with things like prayer and fasting, is we, we don't do them because we've tried them, and we failed, and we're like, this is just, just stupid. This is for, like, pastors. <laughs> if only. We must start small. We must start small. So with your fasting... If, if fasting breakfast one day a week is a huge deal to you, start there. And when that's no longer hard, move it to lunch. And then move it. You just gradually grow into it, lest you become proud in your heart and you become a hypocrite. I'm good on the outside, but a devil on the inside. Prayer is the same way. We must establish a rule of prayer, a time of prayer, a way of prayer, so that when we go to prayer, we're in prayer immediately, and there's no wasting time. What am I going to do? Where am I going to do it? When am I going to do it? These things are, are predetermined so that you get to prayer right away, and you're praying immediately, but do not overdo it. I'm going to pray for an hour every morning and evening. Yes, that child knows you're going to fail. <laughs> Unless you're a monk, You probably don't have the time for that. Build up. Maybe one day you can, but it's going to start with five minutes if you don't pray in the morning. Pray for five minutes. Say, I'm going to pray the Lord's Prayer and whatever's on my heart and be done. And then one day you're like, I've got, wow, I'm going to start adding scriptures. A year later, you're like, I'm going to start adding the prayer Pastor Brandon prays. I love that one prayer or whatever. You begin to grow in it. That's the idea, brothers and sisters. This is not a game of who's the strongest Christian. How can I impress God? That's what he's warning us against. He's giving us rather tools to cultivate your soul so that the virtues of Christ will blossom to be a light to the world. These are tools. Do not overuse a tool lest you blister your hands. I did that shoveling way too much. We're all familiar with that, aren't we? Way too much. Don't do that. Don't do that. These are tools so that the soul can once again be connected with God and the body in submission to God. So start small and do something you can do regularly. That's the goal. Lord, as we now come to your table of communion...